Good morning again. If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 27 through 30 this morning. We're continuing our faith-focused sermon series, United in Our Witness. Pastor Jason kicked off the series last week with United in the Gospel, and this morning we're looking at Philippians for United in Fellowship. Um, I chose the letter to the church at Philippi because it was a diverse fellowship that they had there. And Paul's letter is seeking to help them to continue that fellowship in his absence. Uh, He is imprisoned and he is a dear pastor and church planner and apostle to the church at Philippi and they have partnered with him in the gospel and they don't have much, but they have been generous in their support of him in order that he might serve other churches. But now they are concerned about their apostle, the one, their missionary that they're partnering with. And so he's written this letter for them that they might continue in their fellowship. They're a diverse fellowship. If you go and read in Acts chapter 16, and the founding of the Philippian church, um, it begins with a wealthy uh, woman who's a merchant, Lydia, who is the first convert there. And then not long after that, there is a slave girl who was uh, used as a fortune teller by her owners who then Paul cast the demon out of, who most likely became a member of the early church there in Philippi. But upon that event, then Paul and Silas are thrown in prison and the Lord miraculously releases them from prison, which in turn leads to the Roman jailer uh, becoming a convert in all of his household. So what we know of the, the beginnings of the church in Philippi, a wealthy merchant woman, a slave girl formerly possessed by a demon, and a Roman jailer. And so there's much that we can learn about the fellowship that belongs to the saints from this letter. Before we come to this letter, uh, let us ask for God's help in the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. Join me in prayer. Our great God, you have spoken and it has been preserved in the Old and New Testament. Your special revelation for us has come just as the rain and the snow come from heaven to water the earth for your purposes, in order that we might have seed that grows to produce bread. So your word has come from your mouth and it produces life in those who hear it and receive it. In order to hear it and receive it, in order for it to accomplish the purpose for which you sent, uh, we need the work of your spirit to be active among us. So help us to receive and to believe this morning that we might grow in the grace of our Lord, and that he might be glorified through our lives as a church together. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. I don't think the story is true, but I once heard a story about a man who was deserted and stranded on a small island in the middle of the ocean. And he spent some time there. Eventually he was rescued. And before leaving this island, which he was rescued from, he showed his rescuers everything that he had built on the island. He showed them the, the home he had fashioned for himself, the, the little crops, and the where he set up some irrigation and fresh water and fruits and vegetables that he was able to grow there on the island. And then he showed them the church he built there on the island so that he could worship. And the rescuers noticed that there was a similar structure just a little ways down the beach, had a similar steeple and a cross on top of it. And they said, well, if that's your church, what's that down the beach? And the man replied, it's the church I used to go to. In a previous church in which I served, one of the members came to me. Uh, he had a disagreement with the senior pastor and a disagreement with the elders, and I was the new guy, and so he wanted to see if he could find an ally for his cause. He was disappointed that he couldn't find an ally for his cause. And it's one of those conversations, I'm thinking, this man has been in this church for decades. Great. I just was the nail in the coffin to finally run him off. And he looked at me, and he said, well, I was here before the senior pastor, and before the elders, and before you, and I'll be here long after he leaves and they leave and you leave. And in one sense, as good Presbyterians, we commend his high view of church membership, but sadly, he demonstrated that he was there, but he wasn't there. He no longer was of one mind with his church. And that's what the apostle, in his absence, he's concerned about the advancement of the Philippian church. In order to advance and to grow, that their fellowship would not be ruptured, here in this passage, he calls them to be of one mind. Chapter 1 opens with his missionary report. He lets them know what's happening to them. And later he'll give them further updates. But beginning in verse 27, he begins his exhortation portion of this letter, and he begins his instructions, and he begins with pointing them to the necessity and the importance that if they are to remain in fellowship together, as hard as his absence is for them, that they are to be of one mind, that the partnership that they share with Paul, they are to cultivate and promote among each other. And so I want us to see two things here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. I want us to see that we are united in fellowship for the gospel. And then building on that, the second thing is that we are united in fellowship for the gospel 
without fear. United in fellowship for the gospel without fear. First, united in fellowship for the gospel. It sounds similar to the, the thrust of Pastor Jason's message last week. United in the gospel, but notice just the preposition change now. For the gospel. This is crucial to our fellowship as God's people. We've been united by the gospel for the purpose of the cause of the gospel. Let's consider that in the passage. It begins in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now the apostle is not telling you and I that we must become worthy in order to receive the gospel. Now that's a a grave mistake that if anyone believes that they are worthy to receive the gospel, they, the fundamentals of the gospel are lost on them. That what makes us worthy of the gospel is our unworthiness, our right condemnation for being sinners and Christ being our only hope. We do not make ourselves worthy of the gospel to be its recipients, but having received the gospel, we then are to live lives worthy of the gospel. Some places the apostle Paul would emphasize this by saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And that is a a Hebrew image, the the walk, the manner of your life. But here he uses an image that is home, that draws home for the Philippians. It's it's the idea here of of being a worthy citizen. There's There's a glossary note there in the ESV text. Live as worthy citizens. Well, this is would really struck a chord with the Philippians because they were a Roman colony distinct among the Roman world. That they, because of their citizenship in Philippi, they were already Roman citizens. Not all who were under the empire and who benefited from it and who were under Caesar's reign were those who were actual citizens. And this is the distinction you see it plays throughout in the, in the book of Acts at different points. But for the Philippians, this would have been a matter of civic pride. And so the, the Apostle Paul will return to this idea of citizenship later in the letter. At the end of chapter 3, reminding them that they live in such a way because their citizenship is in heaven. And it's the only place that the Apostle Paul uses that phrase here to the Philippians. And he begins his instructions to them with this, live as a worthy citizen. As you took honor in being a Philippian, you take more honor as being a recipient of the gospel. And as the gospel has removed the shame from your life, your life has been so impressed by what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and his resurrection, that you desire that no shame will be brought upon the message of the gospel by the way that you live. Wherever you go, you represent your, your family, your friends, your wherever school you're alumni of, the town you're from. This was uh, brought home to me this, this summer. We've, my family and I finally got to spend some time in the UP, in the Upper Peninsula, And I remember going there and I learned just enough about Michigan that if you live in the Lower Peninsula, the people who live up there in in the glorious wilderness of the UP, they they call us trolls 
because we live below the bridge. And I just thought, well, if I'm going to be a troll, I at least want to be a good troll and not embarrass the rest of the other trolls as I'm going in the UP and being a goofy tourist and say something funny or and they'd be like, oh, great. Well, it's the same thing for the gospel, but even more so with graver consequences that we've been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God is pronounced over us in our baptism. And everywhere we go, we represent God and his kingdom. And we've come into that kingdom by the gospel. And so our great desire as Christians, as a people, is that we would live in such a way that we don't bring shame to the gospel in our conversation, in our work, in our communications, in our relationships with our neighbors, in the way that we do business, in the way that we study, in the way that we conduct all that has been entrusted to us by God. But it's important here that this is something that we are each individually to take responsibility for, but he points out that as a church, this is something that we do collectively. That if we're to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, it is something that we are to do together. And so he says that you're standing firm. Standing firm means that you are steadfast. And he says in one spirit and one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Did you see that there in verse 27? He says, whether I come to you or not, I want to hear this, that you're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As a church, how do we live in such a way that is worthy of the fellowship that we've been called to? Well, it's to understand that our fellowship is one for the gospel. He says that we are of one spirit. Now, that's what God has accomplished for us, that we've been brought into fellowship to, together, and that unity is the default because it is the Spirit of God that has already united us one to another. So often, we, we, we set the bar for those whom we would have relationship with and fellowship within the church based on, on personality and compatibility and those who have similar interests. In a similar way, we're tempted to do that. That's how people in the world operate. That's how they, they make their, their bonds of fellowship, according to common interests and likes but not so in the church. Our starting place is that we are of, of one spirit. And so we already have a fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters. So that is something that God has created and done for us, but it is to be maintained by being of one mind. Now, one mind is the challenge, and that is the part to be cultivated, to be pursued. That it is to take a conscious effort by the people of God to be in one mind. But the apostle points us to, what is it that we are to be of one mind? What is it? Because there is much that could divide. And as Pastor Jason pointed out last week, that if we're going to make the gospel the priority that we are united together for, that there are secondary and tertiary issues that could keep us from being of one mind if we exalt those things above the gospel. But here it's not just that we exalt the gospel above all other things. It is then we are of one mind because we're striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're united in our witness, united in our mission. We are, our fellowship is one that is for the cause of the gospel in the world. And that is a unifying effect on the church to bring us together in one mind. That the church there at Philippi 
they had partnered with the Apostle Paul in the gospel. And he said because of their partnership, what was he able to do? If you look earlier in, in the passage in chapter 1, in verse 7, he says that because of our partnership, I was able to defend and confirm the gospel. And then in verse 12, he says, because of our partnership, I've, I've been able to advance the gospel. And so now he comes to them, he's saying, just as you had a partnership with me, now you have a partnership with one another for the gospel, for the cause of the gospel. And he gives them the participle there that is then translated striving side by side. It gives this image of being on a front line together. It has a, almost a, a battle-like context and for the original here, it's not just a battle-like context, but it was almost like gladiators entering the arena together against a common opponent, a common foe. And this is the image that he's giving the church, is that here is your charge to go forth, to defend, confirm, and advance the gospel, just as brothers and sisters in a great cosmic spiritual battle. And it's interesting that he would use that image of striving side by side together that would have made some of them possibly think about the arena and the battles that would go on there for sport because it would be under persecution that we know from history that Christians would enter the arena side by side with other Christians and that they would give their lives for the cause of the gospel. There could be something of a preparation and a foreshadowing of what is to come as the persecution under Emperor Nero is increasing and Christians will lose their life for their cause of the gospel. Now what's interesting is that you can be of one mind for the cause of the gospel, but yet our fellowship and our unity is still is something to be worked towards. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Notice here, he then begins to address some of the division. There doesn't seem to be too much division at Philippi. It's a generally positive letter that the Apostle Paul has for him, and he's, he's wanting to show them joy in their suffering, joy in their trials, joy in their endurance. But here he does identify that there was some division in the church. Philippians 4, 2 and 3. I entreat you, entreat Judea, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Here he identifies two women in the church, those who had been striving together for the cause of the gospel but had become at odds with one another. Being at one mind for the cause of the gospel helps us unify, but there is something else that the Apostle Paul would point to the Philippians. He says, we're united in our witness and mission, and as we are defending, confirming, and trying to advance the cause of the cross, we also need to have it defended, confirmed, and advanced in our own hearts and lives. So, in Philippians chapter 2, there in verses 1 through 4, what does he say? 1 through 2, we could just look at. So if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and here's the phrase again, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What is the Apostle Paul doing? He says, be of one mind for the cause of the cross. And then he says, if you're to maintain that one-mindedness, you, you got to apply the cross to your own life. And that's what he does there and following in chapter 2. And Kevin McKelvey will look at part of Philippians chapter 2 this evening about serving one another. But he says, was it necessary to stay united? It's the humility that comes from the clear view of the cross. It is gospel humility that then promotes gospel unity and gospel fellowship. It is a matter of we are to defend the creed of the cross against all opponents. And then we are to take that creed of the cross home and that shapes our characters. We stand arm in arm together for the same cause. We are united in fellowship for the cross and we are doing so against our opponents. But as we are united in our fellowship for the cross, we are to do so without fear. And that's where he picks up in verse 28. We're not to fear anything, to be frightened by anything in our opponents. Who are the opponents that he is addressing here in Philippi for these believers? Well, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a Roman colony. This would have been a place where the, the Roman imperial cults the worship of the Caesar as the divine bringer of safety and security, of peace, of the Pax Romana. This would have been the official religion of Philippi. And in Acts 16, when Paul cast the demon out of the slave girl, it, it threatens to disrupt the, the status quo of the imperial cult. And so therefore, to declare that Jesus is Lord and Nero is not Lord, it is something to where that the fellow Philippians are saying, what are you doing? We have, we have this established special relationship with Rome and you're willing to jeopardize it for a Jewish carpenter who has been crucified, who you claim has risen from the dead. It's easy to see who the opponents would have been and how that, whether the, their fellow citizens in Philippians would have actually genuinely worshiped Caesar as a god it was in their best interest to go along with the imperial cult and to snuff out all those who would, who would seek to object to it or declare that it is false. And so there is a real threat. There is a, a real reason to be concerned about opposition if that they are for the cause of the gospel. But the apostle says, you are not to fear. And he gives two reasons. He says, the very fact that you will receive opposition is a sign of your opponent's destruction there in verse 28 and it is a sign of your salvation and both are from God. The Philippian church, they had been generous with the apostle Paul but he would indicate that in their generosity with him, they, there wasn't many who were like Lydia in the church who were, who were wealthy merchants who had much to give support. They were giving out of their own need. 
They had been marginalized and ostracized, and they have already begun to suffer for the cause of Christ and for the, the, the sake of the cross. And so in their, their opponents around them are, are snuffing out their businesses and, and excluding them. And their opponents are prospering. It would seem most likely that God is not blessing them and blessing the opponents of the gospel. And they might be frightened by this, saying, what are we doing? Have we made a, a grave error in pledging our allegiance to Jesus as Lord? Look how everyone else around us is doing quite fine except the Christians here in Philippi. There's no other sign of their opponent's destruction except for their rejection of the gospel. But their opponent's rejection of the gospel is the scariest sign that there could be. Because it's not looking to the, the temporal status in this world. The Christians are, are small and insignificant. And their opponents are doing quite well. No, it is a scary sign that they've rejected the gospel. The expression of God's wrath in this fallen world is rarely the literal fire and brimstone that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah. No, in, in Romans chapter 1, we see that the expression of God's wrath towards those who have rejected him is much scarier. It's the unseen, silent God giving up those who would worship the creation instead of the creator, crea creator giving them up for their impurity and their lustful desires and a debased mind. And those who've rejected the message of the cross have demonstrated that they are those who are still under God's wrath. And no matter how well they're doing in this world, that one sign is a clear sign of their destruction. But the fact that the church is being opposed for the cause of the gospel is a sign of their salvation. Because the gospel is foolishness to those who have not seen the glory of the cross as revealed to them by the work of the Spirit. And according to this worldly mind, this mind set on the things of this world, you can't see the beauty of the eternal Son of God coming to die in the place for sinners and rising again. As the apostle would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that it is folly to a dying and perishing world. And so as the Philippians go out for the cause of the gospel and they are met and they are called fools and they are threatened for it, it is a sign of their salvation that they have believed the right gospel. It's a scary sign when the unbelieving world gets comfortable with the message that the church is putting forth. Now, we are not to seek to unnecessarily offend our neighbors. We recognize that the gospel offense is enough. That says each is deserving eternal hell. And that none is worthy of eternal reward. And that Jesus is the only way that any might be saved from eternal condemnation. That is offensive enough. And if unbelieving neighbors 
become too comfortable with our church and with churches, it is a cause for concern. But when there are opponents to the gospel, it is a confirmation to the believers. But in that, it says we should not fear because the opponents and the confirmation of the gospel is from God. It's all under his providential care, his sovereign ordering of all things for the glory of his son and for the growth of his church. And then verse 29, the apostle then says, and there's a reason further why we have a fearless fellowship and a cause for the gospel. Verse 29, he points them to the grace of God. And you say, well, where is the grace of God in verse 29? It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. That opening conjunction there at the beginning, it's a, it's a different uh, word in the Greek. Normally, or quite often, when you see for in our English translation, it's the Greek word gar, and it's just a, an ordinary connecting conjunction. Here it is a, the, the Greek preposition hote, which is a, a causal conjunction. He's saying, you don't have to fear because your opponents opposing the cause of the gospel is a sign of their destruction of your salvation. And then he wants to go even further and he says, for this is God's gift to you. That's what's behind for it has been granted to you. For it has been granted to you, the, the word in the Greek is, is drawn from the stem for the word charis, grace. Here is God's grace to you. Don't be confused that when you meet, meet opposition in your fellowship for the cross, that God's grace is not absence from you. In fact, it is operating in your life. And he points out two things that have come to, to, to the believers because of the grace of God. And it's been granted to them that they might believe for the sake of Christ. He reminds them the very fact that you are no longer an opponent to the cross of Jesus is because of what God has done. He is the one who has granted you to believe that he has given you the gift of faith. And then with that, but not only to believe, but to also to suffer for his sake. Living life in a fallen world, the, the scriptures give us a lot of help when it comes to dealing with suffering. And there's a lot of scriptural explanations for suffering. This is a very specific category of suffering that the apostle's addressing. And in fact, he doesn't speak of suffering in any of his other writings in the way that he does right here. He's saying suffering for the cause of Christ. It's God's grace to his church and to you. And this is to be part of the distinctness of our fellowship that we think about leveraging whatever we have for the sake of the gospel. And we do so willingly and sacrificially understanding that the grace of God is working in our life when it is called upon us 
to suffer for the cause of Christ. The Apostle Paul has already pointed out in the, the book of Philippians that his suffering, that God has been at work through his own suffering. As he is imprisoned, you're either in prison awaiting trial or execution. Most people in, in ancient Rome, if you found yourself in prison, the likelihood of you making it out of prison wasn't very high. And here he is suffering for the cause of Christ. And, he, and in chapter 1, he says, but don't worry, my imprisonment has been for the advance of the gospel. And he says that the praetorian guard, the guard of Caesar's household, has heard the message of Jesus and that it is spreading here to the, what would seem like the seat of power of the known world. He says, see, God has given me a great grace to suffer for the cause of Christ because through this suffering for Christ, there is a witness going forth that otherwise was not going forth. Brothers and sisters, that is part of the suffering that he calls the church to. That for the sake of there being a witness where there wasn't a witness before. And that is to be one of the first things that you are to draw your mind to. And not be fearful of persecution. Persecution for the, the, the church in the United States has has paled in comparison to persecution that has existed. In fact, by the numbers, even though the, the church in the U.S. has been maybe the least, one of the least persecuted churches in all of church history, in the last century, Christians have seen more persecution than any other time in church history. And now we're starting to see glimpses of what that might look like in our generation and for the next generation here. And one of the first things that when the, the persecution comes, we have to seek saying, by God's grace, where is the opportunity to be a witness for my Savior in this moment and in this time and in this suffering? But it's not only that we are to be a witness for others, the apostle in this letter in Philippians chapter 3 then points out that there's something that the believer by the grace of God when we're sharing in the suffering of Christ, suffering for his sake, we come to know him in truer and even deeper ways. He says so that he might share in the sufferings of Christ in order that he might know him in the power of his resurrection. That if he experiences something that is, is a great burden and crucif crucifying experience, he trusts that through that he will know a, in a greater way the power of the resurrection and the nearness of Christ in his life. It reminds me of a, a Presbyterian pastor uh, that experienced uh, persecution and suffered for the sake of Christ recently in our time. You may have heard about the story of Andrew Brunson. Andrew Brunson um, was a Presbyterian pastor who um, was a quiet, faithful missionary in Turkey. And 
there was a failed coup in Turkey, that there's a, a government uprising and they tried to overthrow the president of, of Turkey um, and they tried to round up all those who were involved with the conspiracy there in Turkey. And this pastor was falsely accused as being a part of it. And he knew it and everyone knew it. There was no credible evidence. It was all false witnesses. But he ended up spending two years in a Turkish prison from October 2016 to 2018 for these false accusations. And while he was there, he struggled. He knew he was called upon to suffer for the sake of Christ. And he's, he's very frank and honest about it. He, he despaired of life. What, what was so terrifying to him is that they weren't threatening to kill him. Is that they told him, you're going to get three life sentences of solitary confinement. And he was, it was lost on him. On how this suffering for the cause of Christ, how he would endure it. And how this would advance the cause of the gospel there in Turkey among the people that he'd loved and served for decades. His own, his own mother was able to visit him at some point and she told him, Andrew, there's a long line of people who've suffered for Jesus Christ. It's a very long line and it stretches back 2,000 years and it's now your turn to stand in that line. But as he considered his, his circumstances, he didn't feel like his Christian heroes. He thought them to be very strong people and here he is becoming acquainted with his weakness and his terrified at the, the prospect of the suffering before him. And then something changed in our brother. The cross of Christ, the creed of the cross of Christ that he had given his life to try to advance among the Turkish people then was brought home afresh to him. And the gospel became near to him. And instead of being bitter towards his captors and against those who were seeking his prosecution, he said, I'm willing to forgive them for the sake of the gospel. And he said, this is what I'm required to do as a Christian, as one who's been forgiven much. And then he was able to then throw off the fear. And he would say in his own words, he was able to rejoice because he was being persecuted for Christ's sake. And then he began to see his suffering as a blessing. And from there, what rose within him was a holy defiance and a new resolve. And he was released and he does share the testimony. But the cross he was laboring for still had a work to do in him. And as he was suffering for the cause of Christ, he came to know a greater depth of the preciousness of why he left home and country and traveled across seas. He began to rejoice that he was called into the fellowship of sufferers, the long line of those who gave their lives for the cause of Christ and was willing to rejoice that God had granted it to him. May that be true of us. May that be the character of our fellowship together.
Let us pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our great God and heavenly Father, we come into a new year wanting to leave much of 2020 behind and this year has already brought many distractions and many heartaches. And so we need to be reminded of you have your people here in this world for the cause of the cross. So help us to forget what lies behind and to go forward in what lies ahead and to press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Reminded that our citizenship is from heaven and from there we await the return of our Lord and the transformation of this world in our lowly bodies. We thank you that this morning we get to come to your table as a means of renewal. And so we ask that as we come to your table that your spirit would be work at among us for that purpose, helping us to press on. In Jesus' name, amen.